continuing in our series through Zechariah. I hope you all have enjoyed it. Um, we are not really quite coming to an end. We've got like another month and a half, uh, almost two months to go. You guys can see it's about a chapter a week at this point. Uh, and then with family Sundays and Christmas around the corner, uh, we've got a lot to, to get through. But we're continuing in this series. And if you haven't already, it's, it's never too late. You can get a scripture journal. Anybody have those with them? Still have your scripture journal? Sweet. Those, what people are holding up. We have those on the book cart in the cafe. That's our gift to you. What that is, is one page has scripture. The other page is blank for you to take notes. So we just encourage you to join us for the rest of the time through Zechariah. Uh, write down questions that you might have, notes, things that are interesting, stand out to you, uh, so that you can ask those questions and grow in your faith or look back and remember where you were in your faith when we went through the book of Zechariah. So what we've seen through, through Zechariah with all of the prophets is, is God is, is drawing his people and calling them back to himself through this prophet. And, and what happened and what we often experience in our own life is we have moments where we start to just kind of stray away, right? But those who are God's people will come back. That's why we believe in the doctrine of eternal security. That, that if you're really part of God's people, his covenant people, you may stray, you may sin, but you will come back. You believe in repentance. We know that we can repent and be assured of our forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So this prophet Zechariah is, is calling the people back to faithfulness. Go and, and rebuild this temple, right? We see Haggai and, and Zechariah, Nehemiah, Ezra, all around the same time period. God had freed them from uh, the captivity of the Babylonian Empire, right? That, that they had been taken over. God had given them over to the enemy. And then after 70 years, he released them. He freed his people to go back and to begin the work of rebuilding Jerusalem with the walls and the city and the hearts and the temple. And here Zechariah is calling God's people back to this faithfulness. And we've seen that he's, he's shown them, he's, he's told them that, that they should be about justice and they should be about peace. They should be uh, seeking the presence of God. They shouldn't let the temple remain as the foundation was laid, but then they stopped because the enemy pushed back. So God has called them to faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. All, all while keeping their eyes focused on the future hope of the coming Messiah. And now we get to look back at this and, and we say, wow, like what a beautiful, uh, redemptive story that God is. He's redeeming his people. But we look back on that with our eyes in the past of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, but also the future of what is still yet to come. And as we look at Zechariah chapter nine, I want us to, to think of this main point that God reigns supreme. OK, God reigns supreme. He's, he's reigning. He is divine. He is the one true supreme authority that we have over our life. And the word, his word, that he's given us. It is authoritative. It is for us. But God is the only one that reigns. And this is so important because when you look at, at Zechariah, when you look in the Old Testament, it was often the enemies of God that seemed to be prospering. And the reason was it was because they were not being obedient now, I don't want you to hear that and think, well, my obedience will lead to my prosperity. No. Here on earth, you will not gain the physical prosperity that, that you may desire, right? Actually, it, it's quite contrary. And we say this all the time. and The Bible repeats it a lot. So it's no surprise that we talk about it a lot. Is that those who believe in Jesus and follow Jesus will be persecuted. So it's quite the opposite of prosperity. But spiritually, our, our spiritual state, our state before God does prosper. The kingdom and the treasures lie ahead. 
And they kept, especially the, the people of Israel, kept seeing their enemies around them. Kingdoms, right? Not just, not just enemies, but kingdoms of enemies. Prospering and doing well and persecuting them. But what they needed to see and that God tells them here is that he reigns supreme. Let us remember that as we enter into an attitude of prayer and a time of prayer. Let us remember that that God, Jesus, is the king of all kings. He reigns supreme past, present and future. He is the alpha and the omega and our eyes are to be fixed on him. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you this morning um, humbly asking for your spirit to work inside of us and to show us the truth of your word. Father God, would you would you guide us into your word this morning? Would you illuminate the words off the pages that our minds may hear, but our hearts may be changed? God, I pray that we would remember even when the world seems to prosper, we know that you are the king. We know that you reign and you reign supreme. God, we know that you sit on a throne on high that no man, no fallen man could ever sit in. Father, would you remind us of the truth of the gospel that Jesus left that throne and came to die in our place. May it lead us into a place of awe and wonder of who you are. Would, it lead us, would you lead us into a place of proper praise that our posture would be, be in the, a right position focused on the cross and focused on your glory. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So God reigns supreme. So as we think about that, as we think about God reigning supreme, his, his kingship, right? I want us to, to look at, at some things. What, what God is doing for his bride. He protects his bride. Christ protects his bride. Christ comes for his bride and Christ will save his bride. So, so Christ is king. Amen, church? Everybody following along with that? Christ is king. And, and we know that from the scriptures. It's not just something like, let's just, let's just put Jesus on the throne. No, the Bible tells us that Jesus is on the throne. He's at the, the right hand of the Father, sitting on the throne on high. And what we know about Jesus, our king, is that he protects his bride. He comes for his bride and will save his bride. First off, he protects his bride. Now, we've seen in recent weeks here in Zechariah this desire for justice and peace. God has, has called his people for justice and peace. They were not acting according to justice. They were oppressing their brothers and sisters of Israel. They were oppressing one another. They were not seeking peace. They were hostile. God's covenant people, ones who had experienced grace, the overflowing, ever-loving grace of God, being hostile to themselves and to one, to one another and to the world. And it led to a place of judgment that God had cast them out and they experienced separation for a temporal time. And he's called his people back to these two things, justice and peace. And the way that he's done it is he's called them back to it through himself. See, while these things are desired on earth, right? We, we all, the world will tell you, yes, we want justice and we want peace. That's why people, the outside world will tell you, that's why you need to be more like Jesus without realizing that Jesus is calling you to the way himself. And if you don't know that way, you don't believe in that way, you don't surrender to that way, Jesus, then you will be separated. But people all around desire justice and peace. 
but they are first found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If we want to have true eternal peace, if we want to see true eternal justice, then we will point people and ourselves to Christ Jesus on the cross. That is where justice and peace is found. Verse one of Zechariah nine says the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place for the Lord has an eye on mankind and all of the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike her, uh, strike down her power on the sea and she shall be devoured by fire. See, we get this imagery that Tyre has built this kingdom for itself. This, this kingdom has been built and they, those a part of this kingdom have stored up treasure. They fortified walls and they look like they are prospering. And this was the enemy of God. These were, these were not godly people. Now this makes sure very clear. This is not me sticking my nose up at this group of people. However, it's very clear from the scriptures that this was not a people seeking after God, seeking his will and had no desire for him. They were enemies, not only of God, but his people. Now imagine being in the state of of Israel, right? Now put yourself in their position when when your walls have have yet to be really built up. Nehemiah got it all built up and, and we see that all of it's starting to happen. But when you look at the enemy and they are prospering, you begin to wonder, where is God in this? I mean, we can think in our our own life. Of how we've done that with with those outside of the kingdom of God, people that we know that aren't believers and seem to be getting bigger uh, paychecks than us. They seem to to be buying bigger and nicer houses and they seem to have uh, more date nights with their spouses and more hangouts with their friends. And we're like, how do you all find time? And I'm just trying to give all of my life to this. and, And I feel like I just can't get ahead. And that's the way that we think. We think like the enemy is prospering. So God must not be at work in our life. And it's because our eyes are not on the cross. It's on the temporal things of life. It's on the worldly things. So their eyes were fixed on the enemy and, and God shows them through the oracle of the word of the Lord. It says against the land of Hadrach. Built up for herself. Heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like mud of the streets. But behold... The Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike her power on the sea, strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. God, however, will take her possessions. This was nothing new for Tyre. This was the enemy of God's people, and they would not win. Now, you you see, it's not that because they oppose you that that God wants to to, uh, bring about justice upon them. It's because who we represent, Jesus Christ, it's because of our obedience, it's because of our allegiance to the Lord and to the gospel that people oppose us. And it's because they oppose Jesus that they will face his wrath, not because they oppose me. That's so important to understand. They don't oppose us for us. They oppose us for Jesus. And that's why God is bringing about justice on them. 
This is nothing new for this land. Ezekiel 26, 15 through 21 says this. It says, thus says the Lord God to Tyre, will not the coastland shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded groan, when slaughter is made in your midst? Then all the princes of the sea will step down from their thrones and remove their robes and strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground and tremble every moment and be appalled at you. And they will raise a lamentation over you and say to you, how have you perished? You who were inhabited from the seas, O city renowned, who was, a, was mighty on the sea. She and her inhabitants imposed their terror on all her inhabitants. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall. And the coastlands that are on the sea are dismayed at your passing. For thus says the Lord God, when I make you a city laid waste, like the cities that are not inhabited, when I bring up the deep over you and the great waters cover you, then I will make you go down with those who go down to the pit to the people of old, and I will make you to dwell in the world below among ruins from of old with those who go down to the pit so that you will not be inhabited, but I will set beauty in the land on the living. I will bring you to a dreadful end and you shall be no more. Though you be sought for, you will never be found again, declares the Lord God. This was the word. This Ezekiel prophesied about the same land. The people of Tyre were going to face God's wrath because they opposed God. And it seemed as though they were doing well. Zechariah starts out that well, right? It, it says that, that the world seems to be at peace. But a little while longer and they won't be. Now, this isn't like the celebration, like, yes, we get to watch the downfall of mankind. We can't wait to see all of our enemies be punished by God. No, that, that should lead us in urgency. That should send us out as missionaries. That should send us to take the gospel to people because Christ protects his bride. He's, he's protecting us, right? But we want to call people into this kingdom. We want to show them the grace of the new covenant by the blood of Jesus. That those who were once separated, considered unclean and unworthy, we are unworthy, can be made the righteousness of Christ by the sacrifice of Jesus. Let us remember why this is coming upon them. They were enemies, not simply of God's people, but of God himself. They were a wicked and idolatrous nation. And only God can bring that kind of judgment, and he will. We don't go out to our enemies with the iron fist, right? We go extending God's grace and his mercy, calling sinners to reconciliation with the Father by the sacrifice of the Son. Verse 5. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. 
Verse eight is so good and, and it should be a reminder of God's providence, his protection for us, his people, that God will set up shop with his people and protect them. That's what kings do. See, it was a shame when you read about David sitting and, and committing adultery when he really should have been out on the battlefield. He should have been leading the charge. He should have been the commander, the one leading the operation, guiding the people to victory. Kings lead. Kings protect. It's what they're supposed to do. And that's exactly what he does for his bride. He says, I will encamp my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro and no oppressor shall again march over them. None. And the way that he does that is he comes for his bride. Point number two, Jesus left his throne to come and to come here into this fallen world and be in the flesh of man and to die for his people. Kings take charge. They can leave their throne. They can go and lead the charge. Last week, we talked about the deity of Christ Jesus. It's so important that we understand that doctrine. That means that we believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus wasn't just a man. And we also, one of the big points was hitting on the Old Testament passages that pointed to the coming Messiah, Jesus. Because if we only see Jesus as an afterthought, then we cannot actually believe in the deity, the lordship of Jesus. Because God is not a created being. God does not come after this or that. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. In this passage right here, verse 9, we get another Old Testament passage of the coming Messiah, Jesus. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your what? King is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That passage sounds very familiar to us, right? We read that when it's coming up to, to Easter, right? Palm Sunday, we look at Jesus' triumphant, triumphant entry to Jerusalem. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 5 says this. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey Tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a, on a colt and the full of the beast of burden. It's so funny. They missed the mark later on. They, they missed the, the signs, the prophecies. That's the predictions of the coming Messiah, Jesus. I mean, how else would you, you see a king coming? If you want to know that, hey, this Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is coming for his bride, then look at this passage. Because what other king wouldn't come on some white horse, right? Like riding in and like a real triumphant entry. It's just, it's so funny that that's the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the King of all kings on a colt, on a foal. Like we've, we've talked about it when it's, it's that time of the year when we're going through the triumphant entry uh, there on Palm Sunday. 
But literally, the donkey would have been like knees to your chest. It's, it's so like it's embarrassing. It's like me getting on my, my uh, daughter Evers like little tricycle and just being funny with her. It's like it's painful. It actually hurts to have my knees in my chest. I'm not a big guy anyway. I think like maybe Jesus was a little bit taller than me because I'm a little bit above average in height, right? You know, five foot nine and a half. Um, so it's, it's like this, this picture that you get of Jesus. How could it be missed? And then when Jesus came, they were like, you're not the Messiah. No, you're, you're, um, you're a heretic. No way. You, you can't be the Messiah. But the prophet Zechariah says this about the coming Messiah. Rejoice greatly. And praise. Sing aloud. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And before getting to the donkey, it reminds us righteous, pure, perfect, holy. Only God can claim righteous. Our righteousness is God's righteousness. We are righteous because he is righteous. For he's imputed his righteousness on us. And he's taken our sin from us. Having salvation is he. Having deliverance. Having the ability to deliver you from death to life. That guy, our God, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He came in humble fashion. And he comes for his bride. And all humility, taking on the flesh of man. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, us humans, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. See, Jesus didn't just come to talk to his bride and talk to his creation. He came to deliver his people. He came to die on the cross. That was not an accident. Jesus's life was not taken. It was given up. And by the giving of his life, we receive life through his sacrifice by surrendering and believing in the gospel. Praise be to God. I mean, what king would do that? David sat on a roof lusting. A roof, roof, roof. Before I get any text messages before I leave, I can't say roof, right? How, how do you all say it? Roof, yeah, roof, whatever. <laughs> every time I say it now, every time I say that while I'm preaching, I get a text message. So I got my phone on silent. You can send them all you want, right? Roof. All right. But our King Jesus left his throne to come and get his bride. And then it goes on. It says in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What did this humble king come to do? He shall speak peace. Peace to the nations. 
And indeed he did. Jesus left his throne to redeem his people to himself and extend the gospel beyond the walls of Jerusalem to all the Gentile nations and make pure for himself a people. I want to read this to you guys. And, and it's about Jesus and his, um, his humble coming to his people. And uh, Tony Marita writes this about um, what he calls the parable of the pit. It says, years ago, I heard something called the parable of the pit. The parable talks about a man who suddenly falls into a deep pit. It's too deep for him to jump out of. And the walls of the pit are impossible to climb. And so he's stuck there. The question is, how will he get out of the pit? People begin to pass by. A self-righteous person passes by, looks down at the man and says, only bad people fall in the pit. You must be a really bad person to fall into a pit like that. And the man's still in his pit. A philosopher passes by and says, you're not really in that pit. You just think you are. The man's still in the pit. A politician passes by and says, I've got a new program that I'm uh, proposing to Congress. And it's going to eliminate pitfalls just like yours. And the man's still in the pit. A county inspector passes by and says, do you have a permit for that pit? And the man's still in the pit. A pessimist passes by and says, you're never going to get out of that pit. And it looks like it's going to start raining. And the man's still in that pit. An optimist passes by and says, so you fell in a pit. Make the most out of it. Maybe you could decorate down there. The man is still in the pit. An engineer passes by and says, the pit you are in is 20 feet deep, 15 feet wide, and 25 feet long. Man's still in the pit. A preacher passes by and says, I want you to notice three things about that pit. It's deep, it's dark, and it's dirty. Alliteration at its finest. That man is still in his pit. A psychologist passes by and says, maybe your mother pushed you into that pit. How does it feel being in that pit? He's still in the pit. A self-pitying person passes by and says, you think you're in a pit? You ought to see my pit. But then Jesus sees the man in the pit and he takes him by the hand and lifts him out. He extends God's deliverance. See, Jesus left his throne on high to come into our broken, fallen situation, being perfect himself, but feeling the temptation of man to die for his people. See, had Jesus not come, then the price would never have been paid. In church, it didn't need to be. We deserve every bit that hell has to offer, but Christ has extended his grace freely so that we could enjoy him forever. Praise be to God for that. That he protects his bride, but he comes for his bride. He leaves his throne to come and to deliver his people. See, when our eyes begin to be set on that sacrifice, that humility of leaving his throne, then our praise becomes more pure. It becomes more God-centered and God-glorifying. Verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. It says, set the prisoner free, right? I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. We know that we are set free by the blood of Jesus. We know that our bondage has now been broken. We are no longer bound to our sin. We are no longer bound to death. But look at that. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of what? 
hope. You see, to be free from another is to be bound to another. The, the New Testament speaks of this. Romans 6, 18. And having been set free from what church? Sin and have become slaves of righteousness. See, Jesus set us free from our sin, from death, but we are now bound to him. See, it's our allegiance. Do we, do we follow? Do we align with the world? Do we align with that which only leads to death and destruction? Or do we follow and align with the king of all kings, the Messiah? And to do that, to claim Jesus as Lord of your life is to be bound to him, to be his. You are his possession. Now, that's a good thing, right? We've been taught that that's bad in a lot of ways. That is terrible. Right? You don't want to be someone's possession. But the King of Kings, our Lord, our Creator, you're His whether you realize it or not. The world is His whether they realize it or not, whether they ever turn to Him. But praise be to God for turning our eyes to Him and to realize His glorious being and purchasing us with His blood. It says, prisoners of hope. Man, that's good news. We are His, bought by the blood of Jesus for Christ will save his bride. Point number three. He doesn't just come for his bride. He saves his bride. Actually follows through. He gets it done. Saves his precious bride. Delivers her. Verse 13. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I've made it for him, its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. See, Christ is delivering his bride. And it gives this picture here in, in verse 15 that the Lord of hosts will protect them. He will shield us. We're told in the, the New Testament to put on the armor of faith. He's given us his spirit as protection. It says they shall devour and tread down like sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine. Acts 2, uh, verses 13 through 21 says this. Now think about that again. Be, we're roaring. There's this imagery that God's people shall drink and roar as if they're drunk with wine. But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. And those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, shall be what? Saved. They suppose that these people now filled with the Holy Spirit were drunk with wine. Why? Because they were rejoicing and they were celebrating. Regardless of what life had presented, they found victory in Jesus, their king. Church, we have victory in Jesus, our king today. Praise be to God for it. There's this roaring victory that when people see us, despite the circumstances life presents to us, we praise God regardless. This roaring victory. It's such a beautiful picture. Tomorrow is November 14th. And back on that date in 1970, the town that I'm from in West Virginia, it's where I'm from, West Virginia, uh, there was a plane crash, the Marshall football team. Many of you all um, have probably heard of it, seen it. There's a, a movie with Matthew McConaughey. It's great, good movie. And tomorrow our, our town, they'll turn off a fountain in our town and they'll remember those who lost their lives. They'll have a big celebration. But when you watch that movie, so November 14th, 1970, you see this plane crash happen. The entire team, except for a few players that were at home and then a couple coaching and staff members um, survived, but they weren't on the plane. Everybody on the plane died. You go to the next year, they weren't supposed to have a football team. Who, who's going to play for this team? The program. Everything's a reset. And they, they got a new rule to be passed where the freshmen could come in and play. And like there were some rules that they had. And on September 25th, 1971, they beat Xavier 15 to 13. It was their first win since the plane crash. And they were terrible. I mean, you watch the movie and you know that these are a bunch of rejects. Right? Like these people were, were young, and it's not that they didn't have talent that they could grow into. It didn't mean that they couldn't reach a certain potential. But at the time, they were a bunch of young kids playing at this little program that had just experienced tragedy. And in 1971, when they celebrated that first win, despite their circumstance and situation, they let out a resounding roar for that victory. You see, we often can feel that way. Like, I mean, we, we look at, at our situation. We look at what life has presented. We see, we see children dying. We see divorce happening in our friends and the close ones. Maybe we've experienced that in our life, and it's a lot of hardship and trial and trouble. And we're reminded of the victory we have in Jesus because of Jesus. It says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We've got nothing to celebrate in and of ourselves. But we celebrate the king who left his throne to come and die in our place. We let out a resounding roar because Christ will save his bride. Ben, you can come back up. Church, that, that should just lead you out of here today, marching. I mean, listen, listen to, to that part. It, the, the Lord sounds like a marching band here. It says, I will peer over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in whirlwinds from the south. 
we ought to be marching, not as soldiers ready to like fight people physically, but people who are ready to extend the grace of God and call sinners to repentance, standing on truth, but extending with love. And every time I I think about what Jesus actually did, what he actually left, what he came into and what he accomplished on my behalf. Where else can we go but to a place of praise, a place of adoration and be led out with a sense of urgency? People are dying that do not know Jesus. And we know from this scripture and many other scriptures that those who do not know him will be separated. They will face that judgment on the last day. Let us go out and share this glorious news that God reigns supreme. Christ protects his bride. He comes for his bride and he will save his bride. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will not be put to shame. We are all in a terrible state in and of ourselves. To those who repent, turn away from their sins and believe on Christ will be saved, have everlasting life. To that we rejoice and to that we sing. Church, if you'd go ahead and stand, we're going to sing one last song to our Lord and our Savior. We're going to exalt the name of Jesus. Church, remember you are free from the bondage of sin. You are now slaves of righteousness. He purchased you with his blood and praise be to God for it. Father, we thank you for this morning that we've had together around your word. And Lord, I pray that you would just remind us of the goodness of the gospel. Pray that you would remind us of of the kingship of our Lord Jesus, that he is king. He loves us. He protects us. He came for us. And on that last day, we will be fully delivered. God, I pray that you would remind your people that this morning to those who don't know you as Lord, God, that they would surrender their lives to you. Repent and believe this morning. God, would you draw them to yourself? God, would you lead us out this week? Would we see this message? Would we see your word? And would we be sent out with urgency? Would we be gracious but firm? God, would you sanctify the families here? God, we have the next generation is being raised up here. God, those kiddos are in their classes now. There's kids in here now too, God. And they are the next generation. God, I pray that you would use them I pray that their ears would be open to this this morning, God, that you would use uh, moms and dads and, and, and uh, guardians alike, God, to, to preach this truth to them also. God, that we would remember that our first mission, our first ministry is in our family. And God, that we would raise up our kiddos, we would teach them your word, that they may delight in it and know you. God, would you grow our church family together? Would you send us out to go to put Jesus in the perspective? And may you be glorified in all that we do. Lead us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.